Welcome to Trek Companion. This is episode 248. I am your host, Brian Williams. I am Adam Caesar. I'm Stephen Embry. And today we're going to be discussing the first Star Trek feature film, 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. We have a special guest with us today. You may recall from, I believe, our Star Wars discussions during the holidays the last couple of years, Mr. Brian McCaughey. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Star Trek The Motion Picture, release date December 7th, 1979, directed by Robert Wise, produced by Gene Roddenberry, screenplay by Harold Livingston, story by Alan Dean Foster. Cast includes William Shatner as James T. Kirk, Leonard Nimoy as Spock, DeForest Kelly as Leonard McCoy, James Doohan as Montgomery Scott, Walter Koenig as Pavel Chekhov, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, George Takei as Sulu, Percy's Kambata as Ilya, Stephen Collins as Decker, Majel Barrett as Christine Chapel, Grace Lee Whitney as Janice Rand, and Mark Leonard as Klingon Commander. In the 23rd century, a Starfleet monitoring station, Epsilon 9, detects an alien entity hidden in a massive cloud of energy moving through space towards Earth. The cloud essentially destroys three of the Klingon Empire's new warships when they fire on it, and it disintegrates Epsilon 9 when it tries to investigate. On Earth, the Starship Enterprise is undergoing a major refit. Its former commander, Officer James T. Kirk, has been promoted to Admiral and works in San Francisco as Chief of Starfleet Operations. Starfleet Command assigns Enterprise to intercept the cloud entity as the ship is the only one within range, requiring its new systems to be tested in transit. Citing his experience, Kirk uses his authority to take command of the Enterprise, angering Captain William Deckard, who has been overseeing the refit as its new commanding officer. En route, Commander Spock arrives as science officer, explaining that while on his home world undergoing a ritual to purge himself of emotion, he felt a consciousness that he believes emanates from the cloud, making him unable to complete the ritual because of his emotional connection to it. Kirk Unit, why do you not disclose information? Because Vija is going to destroy all the carbon units on the third planet. They have repressed the creator. The information will not be disclosed. Vija needs the information. Then Vija must withdraw all the orbiting devices. Vija will comply if the carbon units will disclose the information. All right, the motion picture. I'm not sure that there's a more divisive film. <laughs> I mean, there are movies that people dislike a lot more, but everybody agrees. <laughs> Uh, like nobody likes the very, you know what I mean? Everybody agrees that Star Trek five is a, not a good movie, right? Or I don't know, insurrection, but, but this movie, there are people that legit think it's a brilliant, incredible movie. And there are just as many people that think it's God awful. I think my feelings on it have, have evolved a little bit over the years, but I, I wanted to start off just by talking kind of bigger picture, how incredible it was that after the original series goes off the air, what, uh, May, June of 69, May, 10 years later, in December, they released this movie. Uh, nobody had, I don't think, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but nobody had ever brought a TV show back after years, put it on the big screen, and brought in like the same cast and stuff. Like this, this is set a decade after the original series, right? Like they'd finished their five-year mission or whatever people had moved on it opens with all of that like they kept it in universe the the exact kind of thing that we talk about at least for me that i love so much about star trek and i know a lot of star trek fans you know kind of living and breathing in that that universe the stuff that we take for granted now like in any movies of course that's what you would do but in in the 70s to do that uh, i find that incredibly remarkable that they didn't just make some movie with you know different people or whatever and call it star trek or i don't know or recast them all whatever that is really amazing to me. I am just just barely too young to have re- to remember this movie coming out. I mean, I was like a couple weeks shy of my fourth birthday <laughs> uh, when this movie came out. So I don't, I, do, I really don't remember it. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, do any of you guys remember this movie when it came, like coming out and going to see it? I always assume I'm the oldest guy in your guys' group, so I have vivid memories of seeing this. It is theatrical run and uh, pretty much everything about it, including, 
you know, the, the toys that had come out and the, uh, the happy meals that had come out and, and all of those things so, you know, I, I, even then I looked with horror as I watched friends complete the, uh, the puzzles with, uh, unerasable ink on the sides of those happy meals. And even at that point I was like, no, 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 you can't do that. But yeah. So I, I, anyone else I'd love to know. Well, well for you, it, it, it was in the shadow of Star Wars, which you were you were pretty nuts about a couple of years before that. Yeah, yeah, I, I had seen Star Wars, and Star Wars unfortunately had colored my opinions about um, about Star Trek because I, I was not a fan of the Star Trek television series at the time, and I think a lot of it had to do with the excitement and the uh, the the flash and bang of, of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So, but when this movie uh appeared when this movie was coming out it was a huge deal to me that because it had that sort of look and feel you know it had that same production values i loved the costumes i i I loved it you know i i actually just loved star trek the motion picture even and still did not enjoy the television series but loved the uh loved the movie you're saying you love the movie like you you watched it and you loved it you're not you don't mean you you were anticipating it's it's coming and getting excited and loving it you saw it and still liked it no i was excited about it because it, the you know it wasn't like today where you get three marvel movies every year uh, mm-hmm. fast you know sci-fi movies were were few and far between and any movie that can, is what we now call the summer blockbuster was was pretty rare at the time so imagine the time where we had three years between star wars movies and we were happy with that that seemed okay to us so the idea that when this movie was coming out yes i was excited i knew who the characters were and uh and and actually seeing the movie itself at that time, at that age, was an exciting experience for me. I loved it. I, I think we stayed, we had missed the beginning, and we stayed and watched the opening sequence. So I got to see the, the Klingons get vaporized by the cloud. And it was, you know, I was not like the person right now where I'm like, oh, it's not exciting enough. There's not enough story structure. There's not a narrative, blah, 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 blah. It was just, oh, spaceships and people that I know, you know, I, I didn't, you know, a friend had to tell me later on that, Oh, by the way, I really didn't like that Star Trek movie. And I said, why? And he said, because they never used their phasers. That didn't even occur to me <laughs> as a child. So I was, I was, I was wrapped up in it for sure. Uh, Steve, do you recall? I think, I mean, I'm a little older than you, um, you know, Brian, Brian Williams, you know, and, uh, but I think I was still too young to, I mean, I think I had a cursory, like awareness of it. I think I remember, um, so, and I think I've mentioned my history with Star Trek before, but I became first aware of it through my seeing, you know, watching it kind of with my dad. My dad was a fan of it in syndication in the seventies. And so I was aware of it and I, you know, I would have seen the trailers. I was too young to go actually go to the movie itself when it aired. I didn't see it until some kind of home video in the in eighties, the you know, or whatever, probably for the first time, but I was aware of its existence. I think we had some collectible like glasses or something in the house. I think they're still at my home or my parents' home. Um, and so I was aware of it. Uh, but in the same way I would have been, I didn't see the first star Wars, but I would have caught up with it by like empire strikes back and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so on, it would about in that time when I would become exposed to all these things, but I would have been aware of, uh, aware of star Trek, but I, I wouldn't have really been into it, nor would I've seen this in its first run. And Adam, I assume, I mean, we're either the same age or you might even be a little younger than me. So, um, yeah, I turned, I turned four in October of that year. So I'm a couple months older than you be. So okay. you're the youngest yeah. here. Take, wow. Take Look at that. Um, <laughs> hey, I, well, um, we were all alive for the motion picture <laughs> um, <laughs> and it just celebrated its 40th anniversary a few months ago. So um, <laughs> we're not, not I'm kids. sure, I'm sure I saw it in the theater because my, my parents would take me to movies. I think they, they, I think the first movie they said they took me to was um, Close Encounters, which came out a year or two before this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember seeing it, um, but um, no. I, to long story short, I don't recall this movie. And and my, you know, as, as viewers um, know, my my history with Star Trek was um, watching it after um, Saturday Saturday Mass. We'd come home and we'd watch um, the the reruns in the eighties of the um, of the old series. Well, I want to talk about briefly one thing. Uh... Brian brought up was like the production value that watching it this time, it really is nutty just nutty, nutty how big this movie feels and how big it looks. I really don't think any other Star Trek movie. I mean, I don't think any Star Trek movie matches it for production value, but certainly we didn't get that level even close to it again until at least JJ's first movie, probably more like into darkness, which I've talked about 
was pretty massive. I mean, it felt like a Star Wars movie. It felt like they put money was no object. And I'll be surprised if that happens again in my lifetime. <laughs> but that was definitely the case with this movie. Not that Paramount wanted it necessarily to <laughs> for the money to be the sky's the limit. But so much of it was Robert Wise's incredible vision as a director. I mean, I, I mean I, I've read enough about this and there are some pretty good books out there if you're interested. But when they got Wise to direct it, I mean, just overnight, it transformed this thing. Uh, it wasn't a joke anymore, and it was a real it was a real thing, and and everybody wanted to work on it. And watching it now, I'm just I'm just blown away. I I think more than any other Trek feature, without a doubt, this one begs to be seen on a big screen. It really needs that. I, I have plenty of criticisms, which I'm sure we'll all get to, but I I'm really blown away by the production value. It's just it's more than I can imagine. And when you think about what you're watching, it's mostly people sitting there staring at a view screen or two people talking in a room most of the show most of the movie and that it still has that level of production value it still feels so big in this epic epic studio picture that's that's nutty to me and i i it's so it's so effective in that regard that i almost can't even put my finger on why and i so i just default to wise was a genius and i i can't really conceive of that that level of of um, conception. If you look at the framing of the film, I mean, it is framed incredibly well. It takes very good um, advantage of the widescreen space and, and just having seen Star Trek always be in this small box and then seeing someone who really knows how to take advantage of the space. And uh, I think that that alone just kind of makes it, I mean, it's, I don't know what this movie looks like in Pan and Scan, but I don't think I'd want to see it. I'm sure I have seen it. I'm sure that the because it was one of the first movies I ever rented on beta. Um, but uh, but it's just a, it's a it's a really a beautiful looking movie and it takes its time. You know, I think that some people, you know, a lot of people would say that that's one of its flaws that you know it does take a lot of time. But something about it taking its time is what gives it that almost Sergio Leonist. Sergio Leone quality is that it just it looks so nice because you stay on those shots long enough to appreciate how nice they look. I love the the first hour of the movie when it's taking its time to like set up narrative and bring on all these you know bring bringing the band back together. We've got the the refit of the ship so that so it looks different, I mean, a little different on the outside, very different on the inside. But it's still you know it's still engineering and I mean it's still these these basic pieces that we've that we've known. It just looks very different, but. It takes its time through that first hour, and I love that. I love the first hour of the movie, like fifty minutes ish or so. Even the uh, the porn, um, the flyby <laughs> porn, you know, with the with, where Scotty is taking Kirk on that. Like, <laughs> what is that? I don't even. It feels like twenty minutes, but I think it's probably like six or seven or eight or something. You know, the flyby where you you see all around the refit Enterprise. Even that, which I really. I thought it was way too long when I was younger. I'm okay with it now. But yeah, it, the, taking its time in the beginning, I'm cool with. I, but my, my problem is going to be that when it needs to start speeding things up, it never really does. It just continues to kind of um, take its time. There's just something about seeing like actual physical models. Like just from the very beginning of the movie, you, you see the, the Klingon ships and the, and the station, which is that regular one turned upside down? I feel like that's what that was. <laughs> Or maybe it's the other way around. Regular one is that station. <laughs> right. But just seeing all those things and there's there's something so tactical about it and I, I don't I hate to be the old fogey. Uh CG remember I mean CG looks amazing. You know, CG can look like photo real, but you're still creating something that isn't real to begin with. And there's just something that there's a warmth to these models that I'm always I'm just always gonna be, you know, have an attraction to. And it and it feels so different. In the 70s, or the, like I've talked about this as far as films go, it's just my favorite decade. Um, even when I don't like a movie, I, I, I usually get so much out of, out of any movie from the 70s. But one of those things is, is just seeing these models from movies like this and Silent Running and Close Encounters and obviously Star Wars. So I have kind of a, like almost an immediate affinity to it. How, is this, how does it feel watching it, you know, now versus then, I mean, I feel like I'm kinder to it, but I'm here's here's the thing. I don't think I would play it. I would play almost any other Star Trek movie for people that aren't into Star Trek, except this one. Like I would, I didn't play this for my son. 
and I've played him several other Star Trek films, but I wouldn't play this one for him. Not even when you're trying to get him to sleep or anything like that. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny. I, I had a conscious thought, like, um, after Spock, the whatever they call that sequence, when he goes and he like melts with V'ger, you know, he's his the, mm-hmm. the thruster pack sequence and the craziness, um, and then he screams and Kirk catches him outside. They go inside of the sick bay and and this simple feeling that the simple feeling scene, the scene right after that. That's usually about where I start to fall asleep. So <laughs> there were several shots that like, I've seen this movie ridiculous numbers of times of obviously I have Holstein's lines memorized, of course, but there are a few shots there that every time I'm like, I don't really remember this. Oh, it's because I'm usually sleeping. Now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I just can't help it. It really is like Valium by that point. Cause you just get this, this, this great opening hour of all this setup. And then you get an hour of, People looking at a view screen, screen. People looking. You know what reminded me? I was thinking like um, the, those magical people that I don't know how they have the time to do incredible like YouTube montage videos. Somebody had like an all shifting video of fa- Fast and Furious, like just just close up <laughs> shots of them shifting from each from each movie, and it's still it's like ten minutes long, like shift shift shift. You know, it's like each shot's like not even a second. I want to see that compilation of just people's faces looking at the view screen in this movie. Cause I think it would still be like 20 minutes. <laughs> Not of them talking. It's just a close up of their face looking forward. It's, it's nuts. It's nuts. And it's kind of like, we, we all know the history of this, that it was originally an episode. Uh, it, the script was originally supposed to be like a, a one hour premise for Star Trek phase two. I don't know if it was ever actually written as that, but that's why, uh, What's his name as a story credit? Because that's what it originally was, I thought, right? I thought it was an episode called, and this is, I'm surprised I can recall this, but I, In Thine Own Image, I believe is what the name of the episode was called. And then it was uh, Eisner, not, yeah, Michael Eisner, who saw that script and said, okay, I think we have a good enough story now to make a Star Trek movie. But it was based on that. Yeah, and that's why... Uh, Roddenberry was always ticked off about it because they 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 gave him they gave Eisner two to pick, and one of them was Roddenberry's, and the other one was Foster's, <laughs> and and Eisner didn't go with Roddenberry's. Well, what was Roddenberry's about? Was it about saving President Kennedy again? No, that that's that's the one he starts to push. I think starting with Star Trek two, but e- either way, it it was expanded out from what was supposed to be a much shorter story. And, you know, people have talked about it feels very similar to what's the original series episode with the no- with nomad changeling. No, not changeling. Uh, is it I, changeling? Maybe it oh, well, is. Yeah. Well, nomad, yeah, you know, about, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a similar kind of story to that one, which is told in 50 minutes. <laughs> so it's hard not to watch it and think it's been pulled out. But, you know, the other crazy thing about this is the theatrical version is more than any movie in the history of Hollywood, this movie was was finished late, right? That that thing we've all heard about a couple of theaters in L.A. at least one theater in L.A. literally getting a wet print because it was so they were they were rushing it over. That is apparently true. We know Robert Wise literally took the final two reels, I think. Uh, the cans with him on the plane to DC for the premiere. <laughs> this movie was really, really late because of all the nuttiness they had with the, you know, firing their effects house a year before the movie was supposed to come out and basically starting from scratch for most of the effects. Those are the kind of things that, you know, when it was released, Wise talked about it was basically a rough cut and he never had a chance to go back and cut it. So I always thought, I mean, that made sense to me because the movie feels like it needs another pass, right? It's an assembly. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's, it feels like an assembly. Um, it feels like, okay, now we've got everything in it. Now let's go through and start to, you know, finesse it. I mean, it feels like it never got that. So I always thought, if, you know, someday he gets to make his director's cut. We'll get the, you know, it'll be shortened and it'll be a much tighter movie. Well, they put up a little money and he got to make his director's edition. It's longer. <laughs> it's longer. What? Oh my God, it's longer. So no, um, personally, I did not watch the director's edition. That's part of the reason, also, because you know I've watched it on my big screen, so I I don't want to watch standard def, and they've not actually done the director's edition in HD or even 4K. But supposedly that might happen. We'll see. I hope so. But anyway, it's not easy to me that when given the opportunity, he made it longer, not shorter. 
Did I let people answer how I? <laughs> no, I didn't. How has this movie kind of changed for you? I, I I don't remember the last time I've seen it. It's been it's been quite some time. Um, it could be as long as somewhere in the order of fifteen years. I, th- I mean, I think before I watched it, you know, a few days ago. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, I, I agree with everything that's been said. I agree that it's one of these. Uh, spectacle it's it you know you can appreciate the the scale the the grandeur it feels like a movie of its era it feels like something that you'd want to go to the theater and just take it in and look at and it's so nice to to see and we of course haven't got really into the real criticisms of it exactly you know but um i i appreciated it for that uh, but it's such an anom it's such a strange movie i you know i think the one thing that i, I saw in this that um, that I didn't really notice before. Maybe it's because I've watched so much Trek and we've talked about it so much in the last decade or so is there are nuggets of the original series. You know, they're just like, they're just like thrown in, you know, in, in certain spots and you see the exchanges between them and it's like, okay, this feels like that. And the problem is, is it that you, can you really meld that with the whole big picture spectacle? This is just an abstract viewing thing to watch and it all be cohesive you know i mean i think that's one of the one of the issues and i don't remember really seeing it in there it almost is like it's a completely different animal i remember in, from the past it's like there's star trek motion picture and has next to nothing to do with the original series and it, you know all these kinds of things but um i, I but overall it, it's as i remember it i mean as far as the the content and and the the length and how it goes on and the sequences are long and it's and it's nice to look at but it's you know the where's the where's the beef or whatever you know i mean that's that's it's what i remember from the past um yeah this is the first time i've watched it the whole way through and sometime you know occasionally it'll be on tv and i'll i'll watch it for you know five or ten minutes or you know catch bits and pieces of it, of it um here and there but i this is probably the first time I've watched it from start to finish in, we'll just say, at least a decade, if not more. Um, I, I can't say I feel – I probably f- – this. you know, I agree with everything. You know, the, the scope and scale of the movie is um, is great. I mean, you know, just the plot line, you know, you got this um, vessel coming back to Earth, and it's, you know, it's basically digitizing everything that it, that comes um, that it comes in contact with, which is, which is kind of weird. It kind of, that's what I kind of noticed when I watched it this way. It's kind of, it was kind of ahead of its time, you know, now everything's kind of digitized and that kind of thing. So but that's what the ship was doing. It was digitizing it, everything and storing it in its, in its database. And so um, it's on a grand scale. Um, what I kind of noticed watching this time around, how much this movie actually kind of influenced um, next gen and um, movies and uh, other movies and everything to to come afterwards, especially next gen. And I mean, you know, that makes sense. You know, watching a couple of the, rewatching a couple of the documentaries that you know the the Star Trek reboot was supposed to be on television, but you know we can get it. You know, Star Wars helped really kind of helped get Star Star Trek back onto the big screen because Paramount wanted you know they wanted that um, same kind of um, excitement and, and and fury that um, Fox got from Star Wars. So. Um, I, I can't say that I feel that much different about the film as when it came out. I There are things that I'm kind of – the one thing, the biggest gripe I have about this movie is that it doesn't really do um, – it doesn't really do a whole lot – for me, it doesn't do a whole lot of justice for any of the, the main characters in the film, um, except for maybe Spock. Um, I don't think Kirk comes out very well in this movie, and – nor do I think McCoy does. And I don't really feel like the, the bond or the camaraderie of those three is captured until the very end of the film that was um, displayed um, throughout the original series. I think that's what's cool about this movie is it gives – everybody starts from somewhere new and they have to get back to that point. You know, even, even – I mean, the doctor's, the doctor's arc is pretty tiny, but, I mean, it's something. He's been retired. He's got that beautiful beard. <laughs> he, uh, he's he's uh, – in simple terms, I've been drafted. He's, you know, he's been brought on. He doesn't really want to do this anymore. He's even got – so he's got a tiny bit. Obviously, Sp- uh, Spock has the biggest as far as, you know, he was – seconds away from the culinar and uh, permanently purging um, emotion. And he's in that mindset when he first comes on board. And he's, there's that great scene when he first arrives where everybody's, they, they know he's not like an emotional guy, 
but they still haven't seen him for years. And he's, he's become like this almost mythic figure and they're so excited to see him. And Uhura has that line about it's how we all feel. Even knowing that he's not an emotional guy, they still want something more from him than he's ready to give because he's so, he was, you know, he was borderline uh, purging all emotion permanently. And because of these things, he's, he's going, and he's going through this stuff with Voyager and this simple feeling, you know, he's understanding the value of, of, of feelings. And he's got, he's got an arc, you know, I'm saying, I, I think that he has somewhere that he's come off. Even Kirk, Kirk apparently has decided he's, he'd rather be, he wants to be captain of the, of the Enterprise again. But he has a there's uh, something humble. He has to be humbled a couple of times, realizing that you know he gets lost. Uh, I like I love that moment when he gets lost trying to get back to the bridge. I think, and then you know obviously Decker saves the ship in what Kirk Kirk's command uh, during the uh, wormhole sequence would have destroyed the ship. So he's humbled again. I, so I, I'm disagreeing with you. I, I think that there are some for at least our our main three. There are some character arcs there. And I love that scene. Maybe my favorite scene in the movie is the, is the simple scene, not the prettiest scene, but the scene with the three of them. Will you please sit down? That scene where Spock tells about what brought him to the ship. And that's just the three of them. And that feels like a scene out of the original series, maybe a movie version of it. But so, so yeah, I guess I'm disagreeing with you. I think that the, especially the three of them, their relationship is what I remember and want. And, uh, just a bigger movie version of it. And I think they come off pretty well. I mean, even Kirk, like I think Kirk, that visual introduction to Kirk when the, the, in, in uh, Starfleet headquarters, when I think it was like a shuttle that lands and he gets off that moment when he comes out of that shuttle, I don't know that there's a better character intro moment for anybody in all of Star Trek. Definitely. There isn't for Kirk. Kirk never looks better than he does in that, that moment. I don't think ever. Any of the later movies or the series, I think I think he's I mean, he's just immediately in command, and that's that's Shatner at the height of his powers for me. So, those are the things that make me enjoy watching that first hour. I think what's I think what's tricky about this is that there are those those bits, there's those nuggets, you know, but. So it's so much of the other, you know, and not that we're, I mean, I think we're all appreciative of that, right? We're, we like to see these, these vistas and this grand scale and what they're seeing and all that stuff too. But I almost wonder if you can't really have both things, you know what I'm saying? It, it, and it feel like it's, it, I mean, you can have them obviously because we can count, okay, at this point they do this, this point that we do this, we appreciate that. No, there's this whole thing. But when you come out of it to not feel like, what do I get out of this and what's it feel like? I think that's, that's, that's the case. Is that I wonder if you can have the, the the big the big long scenes that are nice to look at, but there's so much time and, and it separates so much of the character development and the and the coming back to those characters, which is the heart of the. And it doesn't have to be that a movie reflects the heart of this the TV series is based on. You know, I know they're two different animals, right? But I, I think that's maybe kind of where this suffers is because the, you know, anytime you lose focus, where you try to do a little of this, a little of that, and then you have a little bit of this, and you come out of it, and it's just like, okay, great, but it's 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 just like an academic exercise dissecting the thing, and it's it's hard to feel a lot about it. At least that's that's what it is for me. Especially also because the so much of what happens also focuses on not the main characters, right? I mean, there's there's big stuff that happens to the guest guest stars, and it's you know that's fine. It's just that again, it kind of separates you from that core crew, you know. Particularly, particularly in that last hour, when it a lot of right, stuff, right. a lot of stuff is is Decker and um, Idalia and their relationship, and 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 you know, culminate. I mean, the climax is Decker and Idalia joining, I guess, um, which is you know, yeah, not our characters. So it's again on the long list of reasons I enjoy the first half a lot more than the second half. I think it's I think it's a it's a fun thing. Well, I mean it's 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 appreciated for its visuals. I know it's also appreciated for its amazing soundtrack, and I'm sure you want to get into that later. But uh, it's it really it's funny how much it always gets compared to Star Wars and Star Wars being the catalyst for it getting made because it really looks like it takes just all of its cues from from Stanley Kubrick way more than George Lucas. It's it has the and it gives you some of the tracking shots of, of George Lucas, but not even really because it, you don't get the same kind of rage of motion of the spaceships. It really does. Even that that thing you called the the sci-fi or the space porn where the the um, 
the Enterprise is in dry dock and the little ship is going around it. It's moving at such a slow rate and it takes so long to make a turn that it, it really is more like something out of out of 2001. So if, if you know, just for me as a person that can, that really likes visual directors like, you know, David Fincher and Ridley Scott and Tony Scott and Michael Bay, it is a treat in that way. And I completely agree with anybody who says, okay, well, that's, it's pretty to look at, but it's not like a, a great story or, or all these other things. I, I totally agree with that. But, you know, it's, it also is that it's, like I said, it's nostalgic because it takes me back to the era, the pastels. And I guess what, what, not maybe not pastels, but the color scheme of the whole thing, the art direction, and, and I guess what David, Fick, well, who is it, Christopher Nolan calls it the textures of the movie. The textures of the movie are so much of that era and so much of saying that this is not uh, the Star Trek of before. It doesn't have any hint of the 1960s at all. It's right there in that sweet spot of like 1979, 1980, where color is drained and things get more, you know, these, these simple colors and simple textures and if you are a fan of that sort of thing it is really beautiful to look at but i wouldn't suggest that there's much more to it than that the look of it is is part of the reason that incredibly specific look that is so unlike uh the original anything in the original series and so unlike anything in the subsequent films and so like other movies made of that era the way it looks right down to the uniforms is so much of what makes the movie feel so dated, unfortunately, because Wrath of Khan, that's 1982, it doesn't feel nearly as dated. You know, it doesn't feel like, because they maintained that look for all the original series movies, pretty much, you know, all the way, you know, until um, 1991 through Star Trek VI. Star Trek two through six, they have about the same budget and they look the same. They're literally using the same uniforms. So that helps, you know, like my car, I have the first year model for my car, but they haven't really changed that car much in 10 years. So my car doesn't look like it's 10 years old. Right, right, right. <laughs> but man, never using those uniforms again and uh, changing the colors and the way it looks so much, you know, going way more with the Navy stuff under Nick Meyer and Star Trek 2. But then maintaining that really makes this movie feel not just different, but isolated and, and dated in a way that the others don't for me well, this movie uh well I'm, I'm i say this recognizing that this franchise really took off after rathacon and everything got way better after rathacon and i would even say that the look and the feel and the stories and everything got better but i like this so much that that as its own thing you know in between the bridge between those two things between wrath of khan and between the series the original series there was a there was a time on a side note there was a time where there was a development on a comic book called Batman 1989 and it was going to be a comic book that took place in Tim Burton's Batman universe and it never got made which is sad because they did make a comic book about the 60s Batman but if someone were to to make some stories comic book wise or otherwise that took place in this era just this tiny little era where you know, the uniforms look like this before it moved over to Wrath of Khan I would pay to see it. I would love to see more stories. I'd love to even see the stories that lead up to the Wrath of Khan era and how everything changed because it's such a drastic change. There are comics. Um, and then there were also uh, newspaper strips that, that picked up right, uh, right after this was over. But unfortunately, the writers of those things never seemed like they knew anything about Star Trek. <laughs> it looked great. They looked fantastic. But the writing was just silly and absurd. Another thing just to come back on can kind of its place in cinema history that I thought was kind of interesting. And I'm, I don't I don't um, I don't I may not know what I'm talking about a little bit, but just watching it, you know, the, the whole like that, that uh, dual focus diopter thing that they use a ton in this thing that's almost distracting, you know, with the everyone's in focus on the left side and on the right side when they're like a mile away and all this. To me, I, I kind of wondered how much, um, you know, Robert Wise took i mean you know he edited citizen kane you know i mean it, it's I, I think back on how that was a very different kind of thing but i wonder if some of that is inspired by the deep focus stuff that we saw see so much in citizen kane and his affinity for using the lens diopter effect and seeing the, the close-up and par you, you make it sound like these were a lot of these were choices i don't <laughs> really think that was the case i think he was forced to do some of this stuff well, because of the special effects and sure the, you know the film they were shooting on so that they could survive all the compositing right um i remember some interview i remember seeing up where he was complaining about it he was like i remember the the camera up turned to me and said which eye do you want to be in focus and i was like <laughs> cuss word you know 
<laughs> you know, so I don't I don't know that he that he necessarily liked some of that, but I think it really helps all the bridge scenes. There's like one there's one time when there's kind of a wide uh, it was some kind of near the end I forget, but there was there was just kind of one uh, shot that wasn't used much else in the movie and it was kind of a, a kind of an overhead but wider shot of the whole bridge it was one of the few times where you could really get a sense for you could see the space between like spock's uh, the science station and uhura station you know and it was like man there is nothing to this bridge it's like station doorway station doorway station kirk's chair by itself and then you've got you know navigation and and that's it right it was so sparse but i had never felt that way all the rest of the movie because of the way it was shot because of the way he was always putting the camera so that there was this great this other station and all this other activity going on in the background and it was one of those those moments when i just had this thought of god you know i mean yeah he was he's just a brilliant filmmaker robert wise and someone drove a tesla to my house uh yesterday or the day before that had even less than that on the dashboard i mean it was i mean it's nothing there is nothing on the dash but what looks like an ipad <laughs> That was, you know, just just put in place there, and everything, all the instrumentation, everything that you would consider stuff that you would need—speed gauge, fuel gauge, all that stuff—speedometer is there. And I'm thinking that was also kind of a little bit of the style of that it was way more minimalist, and I think that was in keeping with the style, was it not? I think of that era because if you look at their costumes and you look at the at the at the for for instance, there one of the I remember on the on the making of stuff on the DVD, one of the production designers said, Oh, we had all these younger people coming in to work on the designs of the enterprise and there we didn't we rejected their designs because they were too jumbly. They were based on Star Wars. They were too jumbly. And I always assumed that that meant that it looked like it was kit bashed, because a lot of Star Wars has that thing where you can see all the individual pieces. Now I would love to see what someone someone tried to make the Enterprise look like the Falcon. I would love to have just seen what that looked like, but uh, but I think that that was also part of the design of the time, wasn't it? I mean, just to be way more minimal. Well, yeah, well, but you think about like a, the Enterprise itself has a texture that it never had in the original series, which I didn't realize when watching the original series how much I needed that and wanted it. But all of a sudden, you've got these like on the saucer section, you've got what looks like almost squares that were used in assembly. Or something interior or the exterior no the exterior uh and it and it makes it seem so much more real there's just like like they purposely painted it the model so that there was contrast on the surface um from one section to another in a way that the original just made made the original series enterprise look like it was carved out of a piece of wood <laughs> I, I love that i love that and maybe that's why part of the reason i like that the, the, the porn scene but well yeah because one of those squares they kind of it almost looks like a little elevator they come up out of it at the end which the the sizing is all off there. The, the humans should be much smaller, I'm pretty sure you would think, right? When they come out and they're walking on the saucer. Yeah, like, would you would you play this movie for your son, Brian? Do you think that he would just be <laughs> bored out of his mind? Con is boring. So, I've tried to show them that movie before. Uh, I don't know who I would play this to because, you know, then again, I don't know who I'd play the good, the bad, and the ugly or... Um, or Once Upon a Time in the West, too. And those are fantastic movies that have the same sort of narrative pacing. So I, I you have to be a cinephile of some sort. Of this movie probably needed, I don't necessarily mean more humor, but, you know, there was a moment. There's a moment when, uh, God, I don't remember what happens, but there's a moment when, like, Kirk winks to Chekhov, maybe? I forget. But it was just this tiny little moment, like, God, that, see, you know, that's the kind of thing where, like, somebody understands the character besides bill shatner <laughs> like the person who wrote it and, and getting that in and keeping it in the, in the edit i don't know those were the kind of moments where, like i wanted more of that these almost these like human moments because there are many reasons why this movie reminds you of 2001 but it's mostly the bad things or not bad things it, it like takes the wrong things for me from 2001 like i don't think i'm one of those people you know i think kubrick's the greatest filmmaker ever i don't think any of his movies are cold this feels like a cold version Obviously, it has like this, the narrative is very similar. Certainly, the ending and and what happens, the V'ger must evolve and all that. That's that's straight out of two thousand one. But I think that Star Trek, you know, we talked about it. it. It's about these characters. That's what we love. That's what we want to see. So when you see two thousand one, just inserting these characters into it, uh, it 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 
it feels pretty unsatisfying. And when you get something like that little wink that Kirk gives, I'm like that, that's what I want. You know, that's what I want. I want this. Um, he's almost like winking at the camera. Um, and I, it's a, it's a tiny little moment, but I, I, I almost jumped out of my seat because it's so, it's so, it's so real. I don't know. Unlike so much of the rest of the movie, which feels so uh, manufactured. I mean, you know, emotionally. It is cold. And, and the other movies benefit from the humor and the warmth that you get from the characters. And that probably is never better expressed than in Star Trek four, where you just see that, Oh my God, this doesn't feel like, like a, a crew. This feels like a family, you know, and, and they're the way they joke around with each other and stuff. It's just so much fun to watch those movies. And that is totally absent from this movie. One thing I thought was interesting was uh, just a quick little narrative comment. Something that I hadn't thought of, it didn't occur to me in previous times I watched it, but Decker's pretty adamant against entering V'ger, so I think it's unwarranted. And then, you know, later when Ilya is is killed, he says, that's what I mean by unwarranted. But that was, that, that was the first moment where, because before that, we'd only seen Kirk humbled. We'd only seen why it would have been better for Decker to keep command. But that moment when Decker is like, we should not go into the cloud. We should not. This is a bad idea. Uh, but Kirk says, no, we're going to go. That was the moment where you're like, oh, they are better off having Kirk in the chair. This is a this is a decision that, that Decker wasn't willing to make, that they needed Kirk to make. And Kirk made it. Kirk's going to do that. Kirk's the guy that's going to fly into the damn cloud. Kirk, Kirk does a much better job of that scene, though, in, I believe it's generations right at the beginning he talks to cameron from ferris bueller right and tells him the same thing but it's way more emotional you know and he says something like you know you want to sit in that chair you're gonna have to take some risks it's just it's got so much more heart to it and uh i don't rem- i all remember as a child and even now as an adult is seeing the the deckard kirk relationship is just being rather grating you know there wasn't either one of those you, you want kirk to win the thing but you don't get Deckard's side of it at all. And it's just, I don't know. I, I, I the Deckard and Ilea characters, I thought Ilea was so beautiful. I still think she is, but, but, um, and seems like a very smart and capable, um, character, but I never, those characters always seem to be out of place for me. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Well, you definitely get that sense of like their relationship, uh, is, is, is kind of the later reused, I think with the Riker and Troy, Mm-hmm. relationship and uh, next gen but yeah um percy's combined i mean she's she's so beautiful that she shaves her head and she is just as beautiful yeah, <laughs> i mean she totally. is just amazing she's so so incredibly beautiful i mean i think she's a great actress as well i yeah, think she's she really well here yes yes she plays this part very very well probably the less we say about <laughs> the actor that played decker the better not that he wasn't good, but I was about to say, Google it if you don't know about the terrible things that the man has done. But actually, don't do that because we don't need to add that to the world. He He's not a good guy. Do a lot of work with another person from Star Trek, as I'm aware, right? Uh, he did a yeah, he did a TV show with um, Catherine Hicks. Is that her name from Star Trek Four? Right, right. Yeah, they did a TV show that lasted many years, at least a good seven or eight year run. But yeah, he did he did bad stuff. He's not a good guy. Presumably, he is Commodore Decker's son, although I'm not sure that's ever actually established in dialogue or anything. Assume that based on right. the script that's or true. something. I think, yeah, maybe it's written in the script or something. Yeah, let's talk about the music for a minute. Jerry Goldsmith's score. You can certainly make the argument that it's the greatest motion picture score ever written. I would certainly put it in my top five ever in the history of cinema. We've been talking a lot about look and feel and tone and stuff of this film. But he gave that a direction. Something like the porn scene flying around the Enterprise. Try to imagine that all those minutes with <laughs> different music that isn't so engaging, that isn't so beautiful and perfect. It's It's got to be the most recognizable Star Trek music, right? I mean, it, it helps that the main theme here was reused for Star, as the theme for Star Trek The Next Generation. But yeah, some of it was, you know, you had, the, you had Jerry Goldsmith, incredible composer at the height of his powers given this movie where they don't have all these these long sequences aren't done <laughs> and he's just they just we we need minutes of music okay you know 
uh, he's getting these these work prints or whatever that just say like special effects shot here with like a, maybe a line describing what what's going on, <laughs> and <laughs> he doesn't care. He's just scoring this incredible music to it. He kind of had free reign in a way that most movies you wouldn't have. I just I I still think it's just indescribably beautiful and perfect. His score is so good. It's it's one of the few pieces of film score that I can just put on any day and listen to it. It stands completely on its own. Now you can argue that that's not so good, but for this movie it works because half of the movie is a face of somebody looking at a view screen or a view screen showing some weird cloudy thing. It's the music is carrying it in a way that it makes you I mean it's almost like the music saved it. The, the whole that last hour of the movie is only watchable for me because of Jerry's incredible music. There's a reason that they would bring him back more than anybody else to uh, score Star Trek features. It's it's amazing. It holds up. Um, should have won an Oscar. It, it is a, it is a fantastic score. It's the one that you know from that you can totally listen to over and over and over again. And I was really excited when it got used for next generation because i you know i just i love i love this score and i think what it does so effectively is the visuals of this movie are what make you say okay this is worth paying leaving your house and paying to see because it's this is star trek on the big screen it looks like a big movie and the same thing goes for the music that if you had just used even if you had uh somehow reprised the 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 theme from the tv show it just wouldn't have been the same because this movie has this grandiose huge just amazing you know epic score and uh and i think that helps make it feel like this is not a tv show this is a big big movie because the score is just so good and triumphant yeah it really gives it a scope uh it's 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 so great i mean he really got it i mean he really got it uh, he had a little bit of help from Robert Wise. I, th- I think I've read, you know, he played him the theme and Wise asked for some changes and wanted it a little bit more, you know, March-like. And, and uh, But once he nailed it, I mean, it's just... I mean, John, every time you see John Williams now, doesn't he play it as a tribute to um, to Jerry? I've seen him a couple of times and I've seen him do it. Yeah, I've seen that too. I want to make sure to rec- to 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 mention the rec deck scene, which is one of my favorite scenes. One of the few times I remember very clearly liking the theatrical version way better than the director's edition, because they make some edits in that scene that I think the scene works better uh, in the theatrical. But that rec deck scene, there, there's a couple of scenes like star seeing seeing Starfleet Academy. It's just it feels like oh my god, we're on Earth. Never got that in the original series ships landing and never got any of this they couldn't have possibly they couldn't even, even if they'd had the money which they didn't they couldn't this they, they couldn't have pulled this off in the original series you know it feels so big that rec deck scene feels so big just just building that room is nutty i mean they they shot several scenes in that room but the when i saw the rec deck scene i'm talking about the one where you know hundreds of crew members are there right and kirk is explaining what's going on to them i love that scene i love how just monstrously huge it feels and how definitely definitely unlike the tv show like you are not watching a tv show yeah that's another thing that's laudable about this and adam spoke of this the impact it had on on subsequent series like next gen is that we you know like the rectex scene scene is like a everyone getting together in the in the cargo bay or um the uh, engineering, you know, with the vertical warp core and and what we're used to seeing in that regard that carried through all the other series, these kinds of things, you know, the original series didn't look anything like that. You know, there, it's it's big changes, but many of those changes, you know, carried through and and uh, and impacted and influenced uh, subsequent series and so on. Is the rec deck scene the one where Kirk kind of shows them on the view screen what they're going to go up against? Is that what we're talking about? Right. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a big set. I, I like that. It's so big and there's so many people in there, but I had no idea that was called the, the rec deck. Does that mean it's, it's normally full of ping pong tables and, and other stuff and they just, yeah, there's some games and stuff in there because there's no kidding. There's a later scene when, when um, Decker is trying to get, trying to remind Ilea of her humanity and he takes her to try and tries to get her to play one of the games in there. That's so funny. They don't yeah. have a space that's just, hey, if the captain talks, we should use this space. No, that's actually <laughs> move the hockey table out of the way and let's talk here. That's funny. Yeah, well, because 
there's there's like I, I know it's dumb, but there's this moment where Kirk Kirk tells Uhura to turn off the viewer. He's like, viewer off. And she hesitates because like everybody else in the room, she is looking up at that screen and she's freaked out. She just saw this entire station destroyed by V'ger. But Kirk is like, we, we need to get on, you know, get on with it. Viewer off. I'm, I'm telling you guys what to do. And he has to say it a second time. <laughs> I know it's a dumb thing, but when you watch the movie a kajillion times and then you watch it and you only hear him say viewer off once in the director's edition, it's like jarring. It's like, no, it's better. It's better when he has to <laughs> um, I mean, do you guys? I don't know if you want to discuss that at all, but do you? Do you have you seen the other version? I mean, it's not just the director's edition. There's also an even longer version. The what do they call that? The version that aired on TV, the ABC television version or something, where they they put in way more. So that was the first time it was ever aired on television. I don't even know what year that was. It must have been the early '80s. But the ABC television special ver- special edition or whatever they called that, where it was even longer. So there's that that alone. That's like three different versions of this movie. I don't know if you guys think about or care about the differences or have a preference at all. I would love to see the ABC broadcast version if someone had it on tape or YouTube with the commercial breaks and all that. I would love. Yeah. So it's about a half a day to watch that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. I've seen the director's edition, but it's been too long for me to comment really on the differences. Probably. Yeah, the director's edition on um, the digital, it's not remastered, so it looks even worse than the original one. Yeah, it's only standard def. Now, I, you know, uh, Darren Dockerman was one of the guys that worked on that, and he said, I've heard him on like a podcast and stuff talk about, he's got all those files. You know, he could, he could re-render all that stuff in 4K, no problem. Paramount just needs to put up the money, because obviously they don't just need the new stuff rendered out in 4K. They need... They need to go back and scan the film, which is now I will take the opportunity. I'm going to do this on every single movie we discuss because uh, for the rest of the year, we're discussing Star Trek features. Um, why can't Paramount spend the money to do new transfers for Star Trek movies other than Star Trek 2? They've cleaned up Star Trek 2 twice, but the original, the, the, the motion picture and Star Trek's 3 through 10 all look terrible on home video. Even in HD, they look terrible because they're old HD transfers from the early 2000s. They have so much digital noise reduction on them that especially in like a close-up, you just it people look like literal wax figures. It drives me nuts. Motion picture isn't at it's terrible looking, but it's not as bad as like Star Trek 3 and 4. I mean, those things are painful to look at even in HD. Why can't they spend a damn dollar and do a new transfer? They've got this new like Paramount Archives or whatever they call it line, vintage classics line, I don't know, whatever they're calling it. They just started coming out with stuff. You know, we're getting some movies like Pretty in Pink and Fatal Attraction. Pretty in Pink and Fatal Attraction have new beautiful 4K transfers and we're looking at wax figures in Star Trek. Come on, that's the jewel. Let's you got you got Star Trek, you got Mission Impossible. You don't have a lot, Paramount. Can you please do new transfers of these movies? Okay. They, they, they got Indiana Jones done, right? Yeah, those look like butt too. Yeah. Cause now they're definitely not gonna spend money on Indiana Jones. Because they're like, oh, Disney has to do that. I do remember the on the original, the first time ever we got the beta cassette of um, Star Trek, the motion picture, it had like a sticker or something on it that said includes material or previously unseen material or something like that. Uh, as if there was there was stuff that was in that cassette that was not. I think it's some of the stuff that's in that TV, yeah. the special, the longer TV version. Yeah, well, we played that tape the first thing after that you know interpol message came on was this large now um, i know what this is now but i didn't know what it was at the time a black screen with music playing you know i just this dark 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 screen nothing there and music playing now we know that's the prologue and uh, the overture i don't I mean it's called the overture i guess i don't remember that in the theater and we always assumed that that's what was added into the tape that wasn't there. Because I could see that, you know, I could imagine that the people that run the cinemas in my area as a kid would be like, screw that. You know, you're going to cut down the number of times we can show this movie in a day by having all of this black space with uh, with music. So I always assumed that that's what was the missing material. No, no, I think that would have been um, – the, the extra stuff on that tape was actual – 
I mean, maybe it had the overture and your theatrical version didn't, but it actually had more footage in there. Like the, the porn scene is longer. There's more shots of showing you the Enterprise. But as far as theatrically, there was there were versions, the roadshow versions that on 70 mil. Those had uh, those had overtures, and I think they had ex- exit music too, and that was on as part of the 70 millimeter prints. But yeah, it's so funny. I played my son. My son is eight. He's about to turn nine. I played him. Um, it's a mad, 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 mad world for the first time this past weekend. And that was the you know the the full the full roadshowy version, and it opens with like a several minute long overture over black, and he was immediately immediately like something's wrong, what's wrong with it, what's wrong with it? I'm like yeah. it's just an overture, buddy. It's like entrance music. Goes, no, no, I, what what I want to watch the movie. He would not let it go. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, there's a reason they don't do this anymore. I guess it's funny, Robert Wise. You know, he, when when you get the um, when you get the west side story dvd and they probably done releases of it now they have an intermission and it's in there but there's visuals you know there's this really cool old school animation that takes place during the intermission and you're hearing reprises of all the cues i feel like if you're going to do uh an overture maybe you should have a visual there but then again then again maybe that's not intended maybe it's supposed to be this palette cleanser of sorts i have no idea i could have asked this as a, a trivia question but i didn't Hateful Eight had a had a roadshow version with an overture. Right, we saw it together. Yeah, that's right, Brian. You and I saw it together. But prior to Hateful Eight, Star, a lot of people think Star Trek: The Motion Picture was the last movie with the roadshow with overture and all that. But it wasn't. There was another movie that came out two weeks later that was actually the last one. Anybody know what that was? Mm, give us a hint. Disney. A Disney movie had an overture. Uh huh. Sci-fi. Black Hole. Nineties. There you go. Black Hole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of sad, actually. Another movie with a, that that really didn't fit its era, right? I mean, they had every all the actors in that were almost as old as the Star Trek actors, right? Or, or yeah, older. yeah, yeah. That, that's a movie that's screaming for a remake. That I, that I agree, I would agree with remake remake movies that were bad but good ideas. That was a cool idea, but a terrible movie. That was the perfect thing to remake. I guess let's treat this kind of like. You know, this is our first movie that we're doing in this way, but let's go ahead and kind of treat it like the way we would, would have done our episodes. It, it, what is this movie about? You guys got anything for what it's about? What's it trying to say? To me, to me, narratively, they're trying to get at the notion that this probe has gone off. It's you know, it's com- it's combined with whatever else we did. It's unclear, but it comes back. It's this monstrous big machine, but it's cold. Doesn't have any feelings. Whatever it needs you know, interfacing with its creator physically to fulfill itself. It's kind of one of these. And this is a little bit like how it does connect to the original series, because we all know the original series was all like scared of computers and stuff, right? You know, so it's it's that kind of vibe of, you know, you still need people, you still need emotion, um, machines and big power is not enough and this kind of thing. I'm not sure how successful it did that. It did try to allude to those themes throughout and and certainly at the end but um anyway that, that that's that's my take on it um yeah i agree with steve it's um it's looking to um show an evolution of this character viger voyager Aaliyah. you know it's an interesting pro- protagonist in in that sense because it's, it's not this evil entity it's it's a child looking looking to find its way and um you you alluded to it earlier, Brian. The scene in the sick bay when after Spock's little venture through it, um, you know, it's it, it it needs a human quality to leap beyond logic, and it's um that's what they were trying to say, and you know, that maybe that's what they were trying to do with the characters. I don't think they did it very well, but you know, like the characters growing beyond their comfort zone um, is kind of how it relates to that storyline. But in the end, it's just about evolution, really. It's the evolution of this um this entity, and it's um becoming um becoming more than what it is well here i can help with one thing uh if you're wondering if this is kind of a heart of darkness kind of thing or just a you know as they're going deeper and deeper into this cloud or if it's just a big metaphor for sex and penetration uh i would remind you that gene roddenberry was involved and that should tell you which of the two it is so on that note Instead of doing a normal like six degrees questions, which is where I would normally ask like about an actor that played a different role in another Star Trek piece, I've got 
trivia questions based entirely on Gene Roddenberry's incredible novelization of the motion picture, which if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. They actually re-released it last year for the 40th anniversary. They republished it. Uh, it's really amazing. Steve. Yes. Finish this sentence. James Kirk was – now, this is all based on – this is all the information you get from Gene Roddenberry's novelization of the motion picture, things that aren't actually in the movie, but he gave us in the novelization. Hmm. All right. So finish this sentence. James Kirk was named after his mother's first blank instructor. So she had multiple instructors for this, and James – that name came from her first one. Oh, my. Sex instructor. I'm going to give you that one because it's the, the exact answer is love instructor. Oh, great, man. But uh, I'm sure that's what it's talking about. So I'm going to give you that one. Yes. Uh, James Kirk was named after his mother's first love instructor. Makes you wonder exactly how many she had <laughs> since he had to reference that that was the first one. But it gives new meaning to the, the Star Trek movie when they let's name him after your dad. Uh, Adam, what unusual place do Starfleet officers keep their emergency communication devices? Um, in their butt? I don't know. <laughs> I mm. didn't read the book, so... Um, try, try again. Just, just, um, in their crotch region? No. That's that, that's a pretty good guess. I think you should probably get the point, but it's actually embedded in their brains. Starfleet um, officers have emergency communication devices embedded in their brains. Oh, I was I was sticking with the sexual yeah. thing. Yeah, all right. So... Um, We'll we'll stick with that. We'll go back to that theme. We'll return to that theme for Brian's trivia question. Brian, what does Kirk conceal from Ilea when she first arrives on the bridge? Uh, I'll give you one hint. It's particularly difficult given those pajama-like uniforms. Would it be his rank or that belt-like device that's on the front? right? Above no, her? no, no. It's his boner. <laughs> Did that really get mentioned in the... <laughs> of course it did. He has an entire paragraph talking about it. Of course. That's why, you know, Kirk doesn't want to stand up. And Yes. Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> he promised many is things. It, so is it Gene Roddenberry or is it Alan Dean Foster? No, no, no it's Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry wrote the novelization for the wow. motion picture. It's the only time he wrote a novel of Star Trek, for a Star wow. Trek title. And see, see, I don't believe that. I mean, Kirk's a ladies' man, so I feel like he would have more control over his functions, you know? He's, he's smooth and suave. Mm, no, so but that's I, what I, he's saying. He's, she's, she's, she's a Delton. Even Kirk can't uh, resist. Although there is an entire section where... Uh, Kirk in first person talks about he's pretty sure that he's not sexually attracted to Spock and the people that think that are probably wrong. Yeah, that's in the book too. Yep, a whole section about that. But it's not like I mean it, he's pretty sure and he explains why he's pretty sure that's the case. But here's why. Uh, so yeah, if you haven't read it, it's um, it's a trip. I highly recommend it. It's a quick read. I actually reread it last fall for the fortieth. So, 40th time. Oh, anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> Just those passages. <laughs> awesome. Well, we discussed Star Trek the Motion Picture. So, so Brian, just you know, what we did was we doing our, we've been doing our podcast for almost a decade, and we just a couple weeks ago we finished the final episode. We've discussed all whatever 720 some odd episodes that existed when we started our podcast and it took us a decade to do it that encompasses all the all the live action series and the animated stuff pretty, the everything animated except stuff. for the brand new stuff of um discovery and picard well how's that for you guys that's a that's a real accomplishment so after we did that and we were like well so uh, adam had the suggestion that we should we could we could spend the rest of the year just talking about the movies since those are the only other thing that existed yeah you could do the movies and and uh, you know Maybe you guys could do the uh, the novels too, right? I mean, not not the not the novelizations, but aren't there just a ton of novels, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, but unlike Star Wars, those are never canon. I think it might be more entertaining to write novelizations in the style of Gene Roddenberry's Gene novelization Roddenberry, for other movies and series. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been great, uh, Brian. You want to tell the folks where they can uh, uh, catch your work and what you do? Okay, well, um, I own a little trailer editing house that makes uh, trailers for movies and television, and um, it's at doubleplusgood.com, D-O-U-B-L-E-P-L-U-S-G-O-D.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, hanging with us. It's been great. Thank you for having me. And uh, listeners, you can 
catch us. Our Facebook listener page is facebook.com slash Trek Companion. Our Twitter handle is at Trek Companion. You can send us an email, trekcompanion at gmail.com. Thank you so much for spending an hour listening to us talk about the motion picture. And we're going to be back in two weeks to discuss The Wrath of Khan. Till next time, take it easy. Bye, guys. See ya. Stefan, I passed it.